following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're in this series at the moment on the church, and we've got two weeks to go on this series, this week and next week. And we've been, the series is called Your Church. We're looking at uh, really the, the simple truth that the church is us. The church is us. It's the people of God, all those who belong to Jesus, by definition, are part of the church. And this local church, Shaw Community Church, is made up of us, those in this room and everyone who considers themselves part of this church. It's not the staff, it's not just the elders, it's not just paid professionals or leaders or the office or whatever. It is each of us, we're all equally, fully part of this living body called the church, equally and integrally members of that body. And we're all called to express what that means, what it means to be part of the church, what it means to have this identity as a church. And so we're looking at this and we're, we're doing that by working our way through just one chapter of the Bible. And you'll notice the contrast over the course of the year because uh, later in the year, well, after Easter, we're going to start on the book of Exodus. And I'll talk about that a couple, in a couple of weeks' time. And as we go through Exodus, we're going to be dealing with these great big sweeping narratives that span maybe a chapter at a time. Uh, and yet with Romans, we're going through Romans 12, and it's a very close reading of Scripture. We're just sometimes looking at one word at a time and just going phrase by phrase. And that's the nature of Scripture. You have these different genres within the Bible, and sometimes you've got to go through a whole chapter to get the sense of the action. Romans and Paul's letters are so dense and so packed and so loaded. Every word is significant. Every phrase is significant. So we're really slowing down and taking our time with this. And we've worked through the bulk of Romans chapter 12, and we've talked, just a quick recap, we've talked about a number of different dimensions of our church life. We've talked about worship, being living sacrifices. We've talked about giftedness using our gifts to serve each other, to build up the church. We've talked for the last couple of weeks about agape, this unique form of Christ-centered love that is so different to our cultural versions and permutations of love, that typically in our culture, love is defined as something that is self-seeking, that is self-serving, and yet a love that's shaped by the gospel is a love that is inherently self-giving. And it's a self-denying kind of love. It's a self-sacrificing. It's a self-lowering sort of love that always looks to the needs of the other person and the interests of the other, regardless of what benefit there might be for me, regardless of whether or not the person deserves it, regardless of whether, whether it's going to be reciprocated. It's a love that just seeks kindness and seeks to serve and puts love into action. That's agape. And agape, you read Romans 12, this is to be the defining mark of the church. The church is to be known as a community of agape love. That's to be the cardinal virtue within the church. And so we've spent two weeks looking at a number of different characteristics and descriptions of what agape looks like in practice. Things like praying for one another and serving each other practically and being willing to receive the help when we need it, being willing to have open arms. You remember this last week, to receive agape is as important and often harder than giving it because that brings us face to face with our pride and we don't often like to receive the help but that's agape too and the practice of hospitality we've talked about all these ways in which love is expressed well this morning we come to a few verses in Romans 12 where Paul the apostle Paul who's writing this starts to shift his focus a little bit he's still talking about love that's still agape is still the banner heading 
over this whole chapter of the Bible. But now what Paul is doing is he's starting to shift his focus toward outsiders, towards non-Christians, those outside the church, and he's, he's exploring what love looks like when it's offered beyond the walls of the church, so to speak. He's still got an eye on love that's been given and received within the church community, but now increasingly his focus is shifting to the expressions of agape within the world. So let's read just these three short verses in Romans 12, verse 14 through to 16, and then we'll draw some stuff out of this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. But be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So I've called this message, Love in a Hostile World. And uh, really, I want to draw just two things out of these verses. There's more that we could talk about, but I want to focus on two things around the expressions of love toward the world. Because Paul's overarching point here is that agape love is not something that we're supposed to keep to ourselves. It's not just our exclusive possession, but it's something that we are to offer the world. Uh, Francis Schaeffer was a Christian apologist in the mid-20th century uh, and, and was passionate about defending the Christian faith uh, in, the, in the face of all sorts of oppositions and arguments. And yet Schaeffer said at the end of his, one of his books, love is the final apologetic. Now, he was talking specifically about love between Christians, but I think you could extend Schaefer's words out to love extended to the world, that love is our ultimate, our final apologetic. Apologetics is about giving a defense of the faith, about giving a reason for what we believe. And what Schaefer is saying is the greatest argument for what we believe, the greatest evidence, if you like, the greatest defense of our faith is the practice of agape. It's the practice. It's an embodied apologetic. It's embodied love. That is our greatest witness to a watching and hurting and often hostile world. A world that's often antagonistic towards the gospel and dismissive of the Christian message. Our ultimate apologetic, our witness, our defense is love. Our argument is love. It's a practical argument in the face of a hostile culture. So I want to look at two things that Paul describes in, in the way that we can express this kind of love towards those around us, people in our lives, people that just come across our path. Firstly, in verse 14, I want to draw one thing from verse 14 and then look at verse 16. In verse 14, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. When you, when you think of the word persecution, what comes to mind? I think for a lot of Christians now, our immediate association would be the recent martyrdom, persecution, murder of those 21 Coptic Christians in Libya at the hands of ISIS. I think that the world really got a view, a redefinition of what Christian persecution looks like when that happens. And that savage act of barbaric persecution against Christians, that is persecution. And it's not just ISIS that does this. That's a group that's got profile and publicity at the moment. But persecution against Christians, violent persecution, happens in a number of countries uh, and has happened for a long, long time, even though many people are not aware of it. But I think typically when we, when we think about persecution and persecuted Christians, it feels, doesn't it, like something that's a long, long way away. We feel like you know that's something that happens to people on the other side of the world and we should pray for them, but we're not really affected by persecution. It doesn't feel close to home for us. But for the Apostle Paul, that was quite different. 
Persecution for him was very personal because you may know that Paul himself, Paul the Apostle, in a, in a previous life of his, was a persecutor of the church. Paul wasn't always a, a Christian missionary. He used to be, before he became a follower of Jesus, he was a persecutor of the church. He was a Pharisee, and he was part of a movement within the, the Pharisaic movement. He was part of the most staunch, hardline dogmatic branch of the Pharisees called the Shammai Pharisees. And this was a group that was absolutely committed to exterminating anyone among Israel they perceived as being a threat to the faith of Israel, anyone they perceived as being contaminating the, the faith or the purity of Israel's allegiance to Yahweh. They would try to deal with those people as severely as they could, honestly believing that in doing so, they were being true to God and fulfilling God's calling. And so the Shammai Pharisees weren't afraid to use violence. They weren't afraid to take people out if they could. And, and Paul committed himself to this. He committed to killing Christians when he could. And if he couldn't kill them, he would put them in prison because he perceived the Jesus movement to be an absolute plague upon Israel, an absolute blight upon the faith of Israel. And that was Paul. So Paul was a persecutor of the church. And if, if the word persecutor or persecution is a little bit archaic or foreign to us today, try the word terrorist. And I don't use that word glibly. The Apostle Paul, as a Pharisee, and the Shammai Pharisees out of which he came, were a precursor, in many ways, to modern terrorism organizations like ISIS. You can draw a straight line from the Shammai Pharisees through to ISIS. Paul was involved in killing innocent civilians for religious political reasons. That's terrorism. Doing it within the homeland, doing it within Palestine, and then at times even going beyond that, that's what he was doing on the way to Damascus seeking Christians there so he could put them in prison. Paul was a terrorist, using violence against civilians for religious political reasons. And religion and politics for Paul were inseparably mixed together. That was the worldview of Paul the Pharisee. So when he's talking about persecuting and, and what we deal with, how we deal with people who are persecuting, that, that was who he was. That was his life. In fact, you read in Acts chapter 7 that Paul, or his Hebrew name Saul, he was part of, he was involved in the killing of the first Christian, the first Christian killing, Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, one of the leaders in the early church in Jerusalem, was put to death, and Paul was right there. He was involved. In fact, we're told that Saul, Paul, gave his approval to those killings, and, and chillingly, we're told that those who were stoning Stephen to death laid their cloaks, laid their coats at the feet of Saul before they went out to do that. And you, and you imagine that form of execution, stoning someone to death by throwing rocks at their head. I mean, we think firing squad is a pretty brutal form of execution. Try stoning, throwing rocks at a person until they die. That's how Stephen died. And Paul, who's writing these words, was right there giving approval to it and looking on. It's the kind of persecution it's the kind of terrorism you're talking about. And interestingly, when you, when you look in Acts chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, but what, the prayer that Stephen prayed just before he died was this. He said, Father, do not hold this sin against them. He prayed for his persecutors. He prayed exactly what Paul says to do in Romans 12. He prayed a blessing on those who were persecuting him, including Paul, including Saul. And then, interestingly, two chapters later in the book of Acts, God dramatically encounters Paul on his way to Damascus, encounters him with his grace and transforms his life and gives him a job as a missionary to the Gentiles. 
So you could say Stephen prays for his persecutors and God answers his prayer and turns Paul's life around. Two chapters later, what would have happened if Stephen had not prayed that prayer? Well, God would have still done his work another way, but maybe we wouldn't have had the Apostle Paul. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. Interesting to think about, hey? Stephen prays, Paul's transformed, and then in a strange twist of history, a couple of decades later perhaps, Paul's writing now to some Christians in Rome who are undergoing their own form of persecution. And he's writing to them about how to respond. And you just wonder, hey, when Paul was writing this letter, dictating this letter, whether he just stopped for a moment at this point and just thought, this is, isn't this bizarre? Now, here I am. I was a persecutor. Then I was a forgiven persecutor. Now I'm writing to these Christians about what to do when they're persecuted. In other words, when they're faced with people like me. And Paul had come full circle now, trying to encourage Christians in the face of persecution. So this was very, very personal to him. And what he encourages them to do, and by extension what he encourages us to do, is really to do for those who persecute us exactly what Stephen did for him. To pray a blessing. To bless those who persecute us. Paul says to these Christians, I want you to do what Stephen did for me because who knows who you're praying for. And who knows what God may be wanting to do in their life. Maybe they are or will be another Paul of Tarsus who becomes Paul the Apostle. The conditional situation of these Christians in Rome was probably that they weren't experiencing violent persecution at this point. We, have all, we hear Christian persecution in the Bible and we have these images of Christians being thrown to the lions and all that stuff. That wasn't happening at this time. That's not the situation. That's not the church in Rome. Probably most scholars believe the kind of persecution these Christians were dealing with was more a social persecution. So it was being socially, socially marginalized by friends, maybe bringing shame into their family if they became a Christian within a hostile family, uh, being ostracized at society because they were not participating in festivals where the emperor was worshipped, those kinds of things, maybe not being able to join a trade guild because they weren't worshipping the gods that the tradesmen were worshipping. These kinds of things where Christians were socially marginalized. And I think that brings us a little closer to our experience today because in the West, we don't tend to experience violent persecution for our faith, but what we do experience is more social persecution. And for us, it may be just being socially excluded, socially ostracized, not being invited to a certain event because people know you're a Christian, being kind of left out of certain conversations because people know you're a Christian, knowing that maybe people are laughing behind your back and making mockery of you because you're a Christian, having other parents, kids in your class think you're a bit weird because you're a Christian family, whatever it is, it's these kind of social forms of alienation or exclusion because we are Christians. I think in the West, one of the most significant forms of persecution, if we can call it that, is people who become Christians in homes that are really anti, homes that are really anti the gospel and anti the church. There's a woman in our church right now who is journeying with a young woman who's recently become a Christian. And a few weeks ago, on her birthday, her dad said to her, you're going to have to move out of home because you're a Christian, specifically because she's a Christian. Her own father said, you're no longer welcome in this home. And that's Auckland, 21st century. And that's happening. That is persecution. 
I, mean, I don't, I don't want to over-dramatize it, but that is what persecution looks like. It's people who are thinking about becoming Christians, but they know if they do, they've got a brother or a, or a mother or a father who is so hostile to the gospel, it's going to wreck their relationship with that person if they become a Christian. So they think seriously about it and maybe don't make that call. People that have just become Christians, kids maybe that become Christians in homes where that is not respected and mum and dad are not happy about that and it creates all kinds of problems for them. And those of us that don't experience this, those of us that have perhaps grown up in Christian families or, or we have a Christian family now, and we don't really know what that's like. We've got to be praying for people in those situations because that's hard. We've got to be praying for Christians in families and social circles that are hostile to the gospel and they're really having a hard time. They're really struggling. Maybe some of them are teetering on the edge of giving it up because it's that hard. When close relationships are threatened because of our faith, it's hard to maintain faith in a way that those of us in Christian families know very little of. But at least we can pray for them, right? You don't even have to know them. Just pray for the examples I've just mentioned, if nothing else. Pray for those people. Pray for people in homes and environments where it's hard to be a Christian because that's what persecution looks like for us. And if it's not happening to you or you're not involved in it, we need to be standing with our brothers and sisters in prayer as well as praying for Christians around the world who are experiencing violent persecution. And when we ourselves get a hard time because we're a Christian, the example, the, the commandment Paul gives us is really the example of Stephen. It's to bless and not to curse. And I think Stephen gives us the model, doesn't he? It's to pray. It's to pray a blessing on those people. It's probably, when Paul says bless and do not curse, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that you're all buddy-buddy and you offer to go do something amazing for that person. Hey, I know you just slandered me because I'm a Christian, but maybe I could come around to your house and do your lawns for you. That would just be weird. So just, if nothing else, you can just pray. For that, just pray a blessing on them. Just pray that God, pray what Stephen prayed. God, forgive them. They don't know, really. They, they, they're saying this, they're doing this, they're laughing, they're mocking out of ignorance, ultimately, that your love, Jesus, has not yet melted their hearts. And I pray that it would. And I pray that you'd get a hold of their life and turn them towards you because they need your love so much. And I tell you, it's hard to maintain bitter feelings for someone when you really pray for them. You pray genuinely for them and, and your heart might start to soften. And who knows, you may even be more sensitive to opportunities that there may be with that person. But you don't know who you're praying for. And you don't know what God might do with that person and what plans he may have for their life. So pray for them. Pray for non-Christians you know. And not out of any kind of arrogance, but pray genuinely for them. That can be the way that we bless them. Not cursing them under your breath, but praying genuinely for their well-being and ultimately for their salvation. And so we are to be people of blessing, one of the ways that we express agape in a hostile world. And then secondly, Paul says this, if you jump down to verse 16, it says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. I think you could sum up a lot of what Paul says in that verse with one word, humility. He's really talking about being humble as a Christian, and particularly being humble in our posture toward the world. I would say humility is one of the most needed virtues among Christians, particularly as we face outward towards non-Christians. We need a healthy dose of humility. It doesn't mean giving up our convictions, but it means being humble in who we are and how we carry ourselves in conversations and interactions. Philip Yancey is a well-known Christian author and speaker, and he wrote a book 
uh, back in, it was published in 1997, called What's So Amazing About Grace. Anybody read that book? Yeah, it, it was very popular among Christians. It was an international bestseller. It's a very good book about grace and what grace looks like in the world and the transformative effect it can have. And I think, fair to say, it led to something of a renewal of Christians appreciating grace and valuing the grace of God and emphasizing that. And that's wonderful stuff. Well, recently, Philip Yancey's written another book. I mean, he's written a few in the meantime, but this book is called Vanishing Grace. The subheading is, Whatever Happened to the Good News? And really what he's saying with this book is, in the time since he first published What's So Amazing About Grace to now, almost 20 years, why is it that the reputation of Christians in our culture is getting steadily worse? Why is it that Christians are getting more excited about God's grace and we're talking about God's grace and we love singing about God's grace, but if you ask non-Christians, they would say we are anything but people of grace. I mean, honestly, if you ask the non-Christians you know, what's the first word that comes to your mind when you think of Christian? It's probably not grace. It's probably not love. It's probably something like arrogant, smug, self-righteous, bigoted, hypocritical, fundamentalist, something like that, I would imagine. So Yancey's just asking this question, why is it that this has happened? We, we, we are defined as Christians by being the bearers of the euangelion, the good news, the gospel, and yet we're perceived in our society as being generally bad people with bad news. And I know that you can always play the truth card at this point. You can say, well, you know, the, the gospel's always going to be a challenge to people. It's always going to cause offense. Didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians, the cross is a message of offense, offensiveness to people who are stumbling. And that's true. It will be. The gospel will always push some people away. It will always cause offense. That's the reality, and we shouldn't shrink back from sharing the gospel because of that. But I wonder if, in some ways, we use the truth card to excuse ourselves from being humble. That sometimes we stand on the truth of the gospel and almost use it as an excuse to be a little bit smug and sometimes be a little bit arrogant or bravado in the way that we go about sharing our faith or witnessing to the gospel. That maybe by the way we conduct ourselves, we're actually putting more stumbling blocks in people's way, unnecessary stumbling blocks in people's way. That's what Yancey's asking. And he, he uses these statistics or quotes these statistics at the beginning of his book. These are North American statistics, so you have to take that into account. But I don't imagine it would be that different here. This is done by the Barna Group in the States. In 1996, a survey done of non-Christian Americans, which showed 85% of them who had no religious commitment still viewed Christianity favorably. By 2009, that figure has dropped to 16%. So in 13 years, 70% drop in the reputation of Christians. And this is not just sort of public relations problem for the church. You have to ask yourself the question, why is it that we are not known as people of grace and love in the world? And one of the things that Yancey points to in his book is humility, is this virtue of humility that Paul talks about. And he says, you know, the church needs a healthy dose of humility in the way that it engages without giving up what we believe, without giving up the truth. Uh, we need to be humble people in the way we go about this so that we're not seen as smug and arrogant. He tells a story that bears this out. Uh, there's a professor in the States. Uh, his name's Craig Detweiler. He's a professor of communication studies at a couple of universities. And every year, he takes a group of his students to the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, it's a premier film festival for short films. And he takes the students there. 
for educational purposes. And one year at the Sundance Film Festival, there was a film playing which was basically an attack on Christianity, and it revolved around the stereotypical North American conservative evangelical family. And, and the film just loaded up all the stereotypes, typical stereotypes of, a, of an American Christian family. They, they're hypocritical, they're bigoted, they're repressed, they're intolerant, they're fundamentalist, they're all tied up in politics. Layer upon layer upon layer, just caricaturing this family and making a complete farce and mockery of the Christian faith. And the director of this film, a guy named Jay, got up at the end, uh, received a standing ovation from people, and then he took a few questions. And this guy, Craig, Craig the Christian, stood up in the movie theater and he said to the director, Jay, I'm sorry for anything that anyone has ever done to you in the name of God. And I'll read you what happens next. The entire tenor in the room shifted. Audience members turned around. Did I hear that correctly? They craned their necks. Who said that? Jay fumbled for words, not knowing how to respond. He was ready to be attacked. He was not prepared for an apology. He offered a modest thank you. The audience was literally disarmed. Audience members approached me afterwards with hugs. A lesbian couple thanked me. Gay men kissed me. One person said, if that is true, I might consider giving Christianity another chance. Tears were shed far and wide. All it took were two little words. I apologize. And he goes on to describe how it led to some amazing conversations with the cast and crew of that film in the following week because they'd been disarmed by that display of humility. Now, we don't just do it because it's pragmatic and people might listen if we're humble. We do it because it's the way of Jesus, isn't it? To be humble. I mean, if Jesus wasn't humble and a servant, what was he? But these expressions of humility, a willingness even to apologize at times, are incredibly disarming and incredibly helpful in presenting agape to a world that desperately needs to not only hear the message of the church, but see love in action. And it's so important that we take that seriously in our own interactions, conversations, and our posture towards the world. I'll give you one more story because it's so good. Uh, there's a guy called Donald Miller who wrote a book called Blue Like Jazz, another good book to read. And he talks about being a, when he was in a Christian group on campus at Reed University in the States. And every year at Reed University, there's this really raucous student festival that goes on for several days and all kinds of debauchery that happens, just drunken parties and drugs and all sorts of crazy behavior for several days on end. And the student group was thinking, how do we, what do we do here? How can we kind of be involved and how can we be a positive Christian presence during this festival? So one of the guys in the Christian group came up with this idea. We're going to build a confession booth and put it in the middle of the festival. We're going to build a confessional. <laughs> and they did. But the twist was this. He said, when people come into the confession booth, instead of them confessing their sins, we're going to confess ours. We're going to confess our sins and the sins of the church to people. So they did. They actually constructed a wooden confession booth and painted on the outside, confess your sins in red paint. And Donald Miller, who was going to be sitting in this confession booth, says in the, at the last minute he had major, major second thoughts about this and how it was going to go down. But he sat there and for two hours, students lined up to get into this confession booth. Just a steady stream of students, one after another. So many that another Christian started having confessions on a public picnic table outside 
It was such demand for this. And he tells the story of the first guy that walked into the confession booth, this guy named Jake. And after all, he tells the initial awkwardness of Jake thinking he's going to come and confess all of his stuff. And Donald Miller says, well, no, actually, I'm going to confess to you. And they got past that, and so Jake said, well, what, what do you have to confess? And here's what Donald says. I'll keep it short. Jesus said to feed the poor and heal the sick. I've never done very much about that. Jesus said to love those who persecute me. I tend to lash out, especially if I feel threatened, you know, if my ego gets threatened. Jesus did not mix his spirituality with his politics. I grew up doing that. It got in the way of the central message of Christ. I know that was wrong, and I know a lot of people will not listen to the words of Christ because of people like me who know him and carry our own agendas into the conversation rather than just relaying the message Christ wanted to get across. There's a lot more, you know, he said. It's all right, man, Jake said very tenderly. His eyes were starting to water. Well, I said, clearing my throat, I'm sorry for all that. I forgive you, Jake said. And he meant it. And, and Donald Miller goes on to talk about how Jake then said, asked him, what, what is the central message that Christians have? That conversation opened a doorway. Jake asked him and then said, well, what's the deal with the cross? And Donald Miller had this opportunity to explain to him about Jesus. And Jake said, I'm going to go away and tell my friends about this. And the conversation was so different to what it could have been. They're just, they're big examples, I know. And they're not the kind of situations that we're suddenly going to find ourselves in. But what, is, what, what would this look like for you? Just in your everyday life, choosing to adopt a posture of humility. When you're in conversations with non-Christians, when you perhaps get into spiritual conversations, what does it mean to practice the virtue of humility? Maybe it means that if someone asks you a question and you genuinely don't know the answer to that question, you say, I don't know. We feel such a need. I, I, I do this, feel such a need to have an answer, even if I don't know the answer. So we, our mouth opens and we just start talking and before long we're in the tall grass. Man, we don't know what we're doing and you know, it's, it doesn't go very well. But it's okay to say, I don't know, if you don't know. That's humility. And you can say, look, I'll do some reading or I'll talk to some people or I'll find some answers. That's all good. But don't feel like you've got to be someone you're not or know more than you do. Maybe if someone starts going on about, well, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites and what about the Crusades and what about the Inquisition? Maybe you can just say, you're right. So much stuff has been done in the name of God, which is shocking, appalling. A lot of Christians have been complete hypocrites. But that's not who God is. All of his followers are at very best totally imperfect reflections of who he is. But you don't need to sort of get all on the offense or be all self-defensive about that. But it's okay even to apologize. And don't feel like, well, I'm, but I'm giving up the truth and I'm giving up my... No, you're not. You're just being like Jesus, who never compromised the truth and yet was a servant of all and came with absolute humility. That's what we're doing. When we practice these things, when we practice blessing instead of cursing, when we practice speaking well of people, when we practice humility towards outsiders, we're not just being good Christians, we are following Jesus. Isn't this what Jesus has done for us? Wasn't that the prayer Jesus prayed when the, when the nails were going through his wrists? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And you know, who was he talking about? Not just the soldiers hammering in the nails in that moment. He was talking about us. See, we are the persecutors, really, aren't we? We talk about loving those who are hostile, loving those who are antagonistic. You know who really was hostile to the gospel? We were. 
at one time. We were the antagonists. We were God's enemies. And yet even in that state of hostility towards him, God loved us with a relentless and a ruthless love. And he went and sought us when we weren't looking for him. And he went and found us when we were wandering away from him. One theologian says the defining attribute of God is not just his love. It's that he loves his enemies. It's love for enemies that sets our God apart. That he loved us when we were enemies of his, saved us by his grace when we were dead in our transgressions. How can we not now extend something of that love to others? How can we not be people of blessing, be people of agape, be people of humility when that's exactly what Jesus has done for us? He humbled himself for our salvation and he simply says, now go and do likewise. By my spirit, in my grace, with me, go and be these people of agape. So may we do this together. May we look for the ways, big and small, to be people of agape. And that means being deeply rooted and anchored in God's love ourselves and knowing the love of Jesus and being found in his grace. May we be a community of love, giving and receiving love freely in all its forms to one another. And may we give and show agape love to a world that is broken and hurting and dark and hostile. May love be our final apologetic. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have poured your love upon us. God, we want to carry your love. In our, in our broken vessels, we want to carry your love into a world that just so desperately needs to see and hear your love, Jesus. A world that's so consumed with self-serving love, with just a selfishness, God, and a world that just doesn't want to hear the Christian message anymore. Father, give us grace, give us strength, Give us humility, but give us courage to walk confidently and securely into the world, knowing that we have your truth, and yet we have a truth that can be offered with blessing and a truth that can be offered with humility. Father, we think right now of people that we know in our lives who don't know you, Jesus, and we want to lift them up to you. Father, I pray for anyone here right now who doesn't know you, Jesus, that for anything bad done to them in your name, God, that they would be able to forgive us and forgive your church for that, knowing that it's not a reflection of who you are. God, for anyone who's got all that negative baggage and associations, I pray, Lord, that you would just soften their heart and help them to see not us, but you. Help them to see you, God, as you truly are. I pray, Lord Jesus, for all those, our friends who don't know you, our family members who don't know you, our neighbors who don't know you, our work colleagues who don't know you. Jesus, we lift them up to you. We pray for them by name. We pray for them, Lord God, and we ask that they would be given faith to believe in you, Jesus, that whatever barriers remain to them running into your arms, that you would break those barriers down. Lord, whatever perception they have of you or Christians or whatever, whatever obstacles there are, Whatever prejudice there is, Father, we pray that somehow, some way, you would break through all of that. Break through the hardest heart and soften them by your grace and penetrate their heart by your gospel and draw them to yourself. Awaken them, God, to your incredible love that is so freely given to every one of us. And as we share that love, Jesus, as best we can, make us humble and make us people of blessing, we pray. In Christ's name. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. 
For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.